Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hey, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Almost here, round the corner, future technology. Uh, today I've got uh, two very interesting guests, both from Consensus.net. We have uh, Pele Brandgard and Arthur Falls. How are you guys doing? Not bad. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Um, so to begin with, uh, what is Consensus.net? Is it uh, an incubator? Is it, you know, does it actually create blockchain-based technologies itself? You know, what is it that you guys do as a company? Well, I think I can field this one, Pele. Uh, Consensus is a venture production studio. So we take ideas from the point of ideation all the way through the process of, uh, of establishing a uh, product market fit and, um, and build them into businesses that ultimately spin off. Uh, we've, we've done it once so far with a company called Block Apps, and uh, and these days we've got about thirty or forty projects internally that are going through this process right now. Oh but, wow! Okay. Uh, yeah. In particular, we focus on uh, on blockchain technologies, um, Ethereum to be specific. Yeah. Of of all the uh, thirty or forty projects you're working on, what are the most exciting? And you know, what's an example of um, maybe your two favorites right now? Uh, Pele, you'd probably be able to feel this one. Uh, well, I'm personally not to not to push my own projects, but uh, but <laughs> the main thing that I'm working on right now is uh, called Uport, which I I am quite excited by. It's a project for it's a new identity platform that's under the control by the user, so we call it a self-sovereign identity platform, uh, and it's based on top of Ethereum and can be used by applications in the Ethereum um, ecosystem, but also traditional financial institutions. Uh, so that I'm quite excited by. Um, besides that, uh, we also have Infura, which is a very exciting project, making it easy for developers to uh, access Ethernet, uh, uh, access the Ethernet, uh, Various, um, sorry, <laughs> the various Ethereum blockchains, um, and um, it's, a, it's a great way for developers to get started. And um, you said most of your applications are now being built on the Ethereum blockchain. Is that because of the ability of, uh, of smart contracts? You know, why not Bitcoin, which seems to be the uh, most robust and stable? Uh, well, it's. So Bitcoin is, and this is actually, we can get into some really deep technical waters here, and it is really interesting. Um, but we'll try and keep it, uh, we'll try and keep it relatively digestible. So Bitcoin is a purpose-built network for running a currency. It's a, uh, it's a payment rail, and it's exclusively a payment rail. Um, in fact, attempts by developers to build applications of the kind that we are building uh, on Bitcoin have been shut down by the, or at least the core developers of Bitcoin have made an effort to shut those attempts down. So the really? idea of Ethereum is it's built from the ground up for exactly the type of distributed, um, 
trust native or in, trust inbuilt applications that we're we're building here. Huh. So you're saying there's been pushback from the Bitcoin community that they don't want people um, changing the sole purpose of it to be a payment rail? Not the community, uh, just the developers. So there's uh, really? there's a you know there's there's a rift in the in the uh, in the Bitcoin community between the idea of having it as a currency, as a settlement layer, as a uh, or as a as a free um, or, or, or as a an open platform for innovation, and it's the message from the Bitcoin core is that is very clear that they intend for it to be a settlement layer. Do you think that's a, a good idea for Bitcoin's future, or do you think that's um, limiting it and it'll make it uh, less likely to be wide, widely adopted? I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. Um, I do. I think you know the, there's there's problems with the way uh, that they engage the community, but they're not. Um, but the developers they're not PR experts, and I think they've uh, they've chosen a path that's very safe and stable, and I think that is the right decision for for Bitcoin. And uh, hmm. part of the reason I say that is that we have Ethereum, and Ethereum is a place where we innovate and can, uh, and can do all kinds of crazy things that you can't do with a network that's worth $10 billion. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so that's the... Uh, that's that's the uh, that's the kind of that's the Bitcoin Ethereum uh, difference, really. Okay. Are there any other um, competing networks to Ethereum that have its capability, or is that the only uh, one? Well, it's, that's a really interesting question. So there there are some uh, competing networks. Uh, you've got um, You've got there's one called Scenario. There's another one uh, called Tezos. Both that have uh, advanced smart contract capabilities. But the big problem is where are the developers? What are the developers building? And are the applications and the technologies being built by these developers are compatible with the uh, with the platform with these different platforms? And the answer is generally no. Um, and so what you have is a series of different platforms that all have their, their strengths and weaknesses. Nothing is nearly the size of Ethereum. And in fact, because the Ethereum has proven to be so popular, the core technology that, uh, that basically defines the parameters of what a transaction or what a smart contract is within, mm -hmm. uh, within the Ethereum system, it's called the Ethereum virtual machine. That seems to be being adopted as a... Uh, as a blockchain industry standard, the standard for uh, writing smart contracts and um, and building programmable uh, applications on programmable blockchains. Okay, and uh, you know I know this pure opinion. Um, it's not investment advice or anything, but do you think that um, Ethereum's token, you know, Ether, will become far more valuable over time because it's it's getting this network effect? And it's become the uh, de facto standard for smart contracts and you know blockchain-based stuff. It's not a it's not an investment vehicle, uh, so it's not you know it's, it's not something that is designed to have people dump money into in the way that um, seems, people seem to want to do. It's a uh, it's purely a uh, an economic mechanism, uh, the, the Ether token for uh, securing the network. 
and for uh, for paying services on that network. And you know, I mean, if you, if you understand like what the token is and its uh, its particular price properties, yeah. then maybe it is interesting. Um, that's an interesting question. But I think when we talk about these tokens, talking about their uh, monetary value instead of the utility that they play, so the, the utility they have and the role that they play on the network, um, I think that actually confuses the issue and can make it harder to understand what these networks do um, and, and what they can be used for. So it's, I know I'm kind of I'm kind of sidestepping the question there, but it's because I think it's okay. It's a, you know, it's a question that people often ask, but it's one that I yeah. intentionally don't answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe this one will be easier to answer. Why why does the token have the value it does? Why does any token, like Factum, you know, they're factoids, why do these um, different tokens have different values and why do they go up and down? And, you know, what's your speculation on why that happens? So, and I, I don't want to complete the whole conversation yet, um, but, uh, but I, the reason that uh, these tokens can uh, fluctuate so wildly in value is that people see... Uh, Ethereum and uh, and these other blockchain platforms as being a new wave of innovation, a lot like the internet, uh, the original internet. And that's not the wrong way to look at it. I mean, this is something very new. We can now uh, transmit um, very extremely valuable information in an, ex in an extremely uh, unique, new, powerful way that allows us to mm. do new things. And because the because you need to have um, ether to uh, to to pay for these transactions, there is an assumption that, and to use the network, there is an assumption that there is going to be high demand in the future for the service that this uh, this platform offers, and thus there will be high demand for ether itself. And that is the that's the reason why uh, that, that's the assumption behind uh, price speculators. Okay, but you, essentially, it seems like price speculators are the driving force of the price of various tokens. Generally, yes. Uh, I mean, the same is true of Bitcoin, of course. Um, right. Know, the 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 throughput of the network, which is why I say it's a good move for them to, to treat it like a settlement layer. It doesn't have the ability to um, to you know you can only get three and a half transactions or you know seven transactions through every two seconds, right? You know, they thought you could right. do twice that. It turns out this is that's the max it can do. And they've come up with like lower well they've come up with some some solutions to expand that. But for the most part, um, for the most part, in order for that network to be profitable they need to or you know, to be able to pay for its own security, eventually hmm. they need to raise the transaction fees. And if they're going to do that, then they need to be, you know, they need to be competitive. The, the network itself needs to be price competitive with other value transaction methods, and um, and so they need to uh, they need to be, make sure that they're transmitting very large sums of money or of value. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, getting back to um, to consensus, are all your projects uh, spawned in house, or do outside companies come to you, startups, and say, hey? You know, we wanted to help us get our our feet off, you know, off to a start. How did Dewport come about, Pale? 
that's actually probably a good story. Yeah, uh, it's, it came about within the company, within Consensus. Uh, I wasn't part of uh, Consensus when the first idea came. So I'm not 100% sure of uh, the the exact origin of it, but it, it's that it's something that had been people have been seeing for a long time was was needed. So a team of people within the company started working it working on it, and I was uh, I joined the company specifically to work on it, uh, and. Uh, so a lot of different people joined together, and and um, we we've now uh, yeah we we come together and created a a, a pretty uh, good product. So most of the, most of the projects start within consensus, uh, but there okay. have been a few of them that have uh, where where outside companies have uh, or teams uh, often open source developers they have joined. Uh, join consensus right. and those projects now become part of consensus. Yeah, so again, can we go a little bit more in depth on some of the projects? Maybe Pele, the one you're working on, can you talk a little bit about what it does and where it's going and, and the whole reasoning behind it? Sure. So, uh, Uport is, um, Uport allows you, uh, the, 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 the user, to be in control of your own identity. So currently identity documents are are documents issued by governments or financial institutions, etc. Or and or they're they're basically always under control by, by someone else. You could even you could put Facebook under that as well. Uh, so with Uports you have an app running on your phone and you essentially create a Create your own smart contract, which represents your identity, and that's it's completely under your control. No one else can take it away from you, or, or any, or yeah, no one can can steal it from you. No one can lock it down or, or or ban your identity. Well, they can they can they can't shut your identity down, basically. So um, to make it um, be worth something, rather. You can use it to build a reputation. You can add, you can have uh, other uh, banks or exchanges or or friends go in and attest information about you. Say, I know you, or a bank could say, we have verified uh, your identity. And these kinds of things, they still remain under your control, but we allow uh, the, the app allows you to go in and ask banks or businesses for these kinds of, of uh attestations that we call UFACTS, and then you can share them out as you want to with um, with other with other people. So this solves a lot of issues. Um, for example, um, in the developing world, a lot of countries, they don't have um, proper identity systems. Um, so like in the US, there's a social security number, and and you often require that as well as maybe a driving license number to open a bank account. And these are right. due to to these uh, you know international uh, know your customer anti money laundering rules. Whether those rules are, are correct or not, uh, they are part of the of the 
of life today. And these kinds of things are keeping people out. These kinds of rules are keeping people out of the financial system because they don't have access to identity systems. For example, Coinbase, as an example, Coinbase would pro would or, or Kraken or any other kind of uh, U.S. or European exchange would happily like to have customers all over the world. They just don't have a way for them to verify the identity of users in, say, Somalia or Nicaragua, where I am right now. Or, right. So they cannot go in and offer those services legally to them, or they will get into big trouble. So with Uport, they like a user... Uh, in some country, any country around the world, they can create their own identity and they can go in and using whatever techniques are, whatever institutions are valid in their region, uh, in their country or town, they can go in and get and build up reputation, build up these kinds of attestations about who they are. And with those attestations, they can uh, now um, use those to open accounts with a uh, uh, Bitcoin exchanges or Ethereum exchanges. I, are we allowed to talk about uh, the UN or uh, Luxembourg, by the way? Um, I'm not quite, not <laughs> quite sure. I haven't, <laughs> I, I haven't really been that, that part of, of those, of a lot of those kinds of things. So I'm not quite sh even sure what's been going on, but, um, uh, but we are, we are we are working with a lot of partnerships with uh, international organizations and financial institutions and even countries right. uh, where they want to uh, use Uport for uh, as an identity platform uh, that they. Well, all right. So into. yeah, a couple of questions about Uport. Um, it seems like the biggest issue is initially getting into the system. You know, what's to stop someone from uh, faking their way into it initially, and then because of the fact that it's likely to be blockchain-based, oh, well, now it can't be tampered with. But now you've created, uh, let's say, you know, I don't know if this is possible, but, you know, if you create a fake identity and now it's considered to be tamper-proof, it would give even more validity to a fake identity, wouldn't it? Uh, well, well, to get this, this, I mean, you could create a, a fake Facebook account, those kind, of, and and yes, Facebook could shut that down. So you could create a fake Uport, sure, but that does just because you have a Uport doesn't mean that someone else has to accept it. So, so to be able to do that, you have to go in and, and build up a reputation, and when reputation is, is something that you know comes at some some cost, so you would have to. You could uh, visit a, a government office or a bank or post office and have them verify your identity using, say, a, a national ID document or some other some other methodology. So these things are not as easily faked. So just because someone goes in and and has a U-port doesn't automatically mean that that U-port itself is valid to say open an account with Coinbase or Kraken or 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 any other Bitcoin exchange. That's then up to the exchange itself to determine what what requirements they have. So we're not 
one thing that we are doing is that we're not specifying to anyone what you know like how to actually use that platform so we're not saying you as a financial institution you know you should you sh just have to accept what the U port says. No, the financial institution, they will then themselves go in, just like they do today, create different rules for how they, how they look at these attestations and, uh, and improve them. Yeah, but doesn't it seem kind of like a, maybe I don't understand it properly, but like a catch-22, if you need government documents like a national ID card or a driver's license or that kind of stuff to get into the U-Port system, why not just use those methods of identifying yourself? Why use U-Port? And if you don't need that, how do you get widespread acceptance of U-Port where it can be used in place of those traditional government documents that different governments issue? So I think the... Well, uh, well yeah, 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 just... Uh, Basically, I mean, to, to create a U-port, um, it doesn't need any of those documents. It's, however, if you want to use your U-port for financial transactions, you may need those documents. But just because you say that you have uh, a, a, a government ID doesn't actually mean that that can be verified. Like in the U.S., what they do is if you, if you go in and open a, an account and you enter uh, your social security details, what they'll often go in and do is they'll check on on, on uh, credit, like check various places to see that this uh, social security number matches the name and the address, and they'll ask for various other kinds of details to, to bring you up to some required level. So just being able to to show this ID doesn't necessarily mean that like like if I if I had a Nicaraguan national ID number and I right. the Coinbase with it, they wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it. Basically, so what we can do is we can set all of these things up in a standard way, just like the there, there's like an international system of apostiles and and like a more local level uh, notarizations. So so for example, you can go in and have a notarized copy of your of your passport. And you can you can think of these attestations essentially like a notar notarization. So if you want a notarization done at a like a from, from a, your from a uh, notary in Florida, have that be acceptable in say Panama? That right. that uh, has to go through an apostille and all these international very very convoluted ways of verifying all of these kinds of things so essentially what we're trying to do is replace all of those things so we're not saying what any of these things mean but we're setting up the mechanisms where people can go in and say this is who i am and okay. this is also how i can go in and ask other people to verify things about me and how then businesses or other people can go in and verify what other people say about me. But the, the, the important part is that it's all under the control of, of you. It's not controlled by a central authority. Um, and uh, so it, it's always under your control. You can't okay. be locked out of, of, your, of your U-port. How, um, just a quick question, how are people uh, locked out when, you know, when it's not U-port, other systems, like what, what happens, like they're they lose their national ID card or it's taken from them? Or what, what have you seen the, 
that governments do or how have people lost control of their identity? Well, for example, if you if you if you use if you lose your your passport, for example, if any if you are abroad, that's a real pain. So now you have to go in and contact a um, you know go to your embassy, get a temporary passport, or or go through some kind of convoluted process. Uh, there are cases as well where uh, people have their national identities revoked uh, because of they aren't following some certain rules, like there are, there are talks about. Uh, I think there are actually laws in the books in the U.S., for example, where you could have your passport revoked for various financial reasons. Um, and, I'm going to um, example. Those kinds of things. I've got a Excuse classic me? example. I I recently okay. uh, I had a uh, a briefcase stolen in a shop in uh, East Village in New York, and um, in it, unfortunately, was my U.S. passport and my certificate of birth abroad. So it's basically all of my identifying documents for the United States uh, just vanished one afternoon. And um, I went to go and try to get these things replaced. What I found was they wanted me to send my New Zealand passport, which is my other citizenship, to the... Uh, to the actual office where my birth certificate was going to be uh, reprinted. So the idea is if I was to do that, I would have relinquished entirely all uh, all significant identifying documents. And I would, in essence, be completely unable to reach a certain degree of uh, certainty to prove my own identity. And... Um, and <clears throat> That's an incredibly dangerous position to be in, especially if you're someone who has an accent or looks different. Um, and not that, you know, I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, right? But, like, how would I prove that I was a U.S. citizen? I would have no, no way to do that. And I would also have no way to prove that I was a New Zealand citizen. Um, but the idea with U-Port is that if you have that identifying, uh, if, you have the, if you have a U-Port identity, you cannot lose those documents. You know, you have those permanently. And in some cases, you're required to present them in a specific form. You obviously are required to present your physical passport as a physical passport. You cannot yet turn up at uh, immigration with your U-port identity. But um, in uh, places like Estonia, you have these, uh, what they call e-residencies, where you have a, a bunch of, you have cryptographic identifiers very similar to what Uport does, but not nearly as advanced. And, uh, and that serves as a kind of permanent proof of who you are, regardless of the documents that, uh, that you might be required to submit uh, in, the, in the specific scenario to, um, to prove, prove your identity. So what's going to be the, um, the factor that um, allows Uport to be widely recognized as an acceptable form of identity? What's what's it going to take? I think it's I I, I think it's just going to happen. <laughs> I think it's uh, <laughs> you know it's it's kind of hard to describe. The um, there's uh, there's interest at uh, at the UN in this kind of universal identification system, uh, and Great. the question is how do you how do you build it? And there is only one answer, and that is the that is what you know Uport is producing. There's really no other plausible way to do it. Um, we've been looking for a 
some way of having a universal identification system, but we've never had the uh, the qualities uh, that are present in the Ethereum network available to us. And so right. with the Ethereum network, suddenly these new things that we never imagined were possible, um, we can we can do. And there is a you know <laughs> there is. A, there is demand for, for solutions like this already in the wild. It's just a matter of um, it's just a matter of building out those solutions. Okay. And uh, um, uh, yeah, just uh, I'll just add to that a, a a problem with most other identity solutions is that they they operate like silos. Uh, they they uh, um, so for example Facebook is. You can consider Facebook as, as a silo, a very, very large silo, but Facebook is is an identity platform, amongst other things. Uh, and most of the different kinds of um, competitors, if you will, that we have in the identity space who are trying to solve these issues are also doing it as, as, as kind of closed silos. Um, besides that, many of them are are modeling their approach on, on trying to cop, to create digital equivalents of existing um, you know national ID kind of systems uh, so right. essentially creating like a an, an, a passport or a driving license that you have on your phone as opposed to figure out what actually makes sense in this you know in this new reality of, of uh, blockchain and and internet, so, so so most of them have not have not really gone through and like looked at the the actual core reasons for identity and what what you're trying to solve. They've just essentially been trying to create these digital versions of what already exists. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Just um, you know, we'll leave that for now. Just just a couple more questions. Um, who would you say is uh, Consensus's customer? Is it the individual, or is it more, you know, you want to create these these ideas, turn them into companies, spin them off, have them acquired? You know, what's the goal of uh, of all this work that you guys are doing, besides an individual product pro, uh, project's goal? You know, the overall goal. Well, um, okay, yeah. So there's there's Consensus as a company has three branches. One is we call the core infrastructure branch. And what that does is it builds middleware to enable uh, uh, higher level applications to interact with the Ethereum network. Uh, then we have a product branch, which is essentially customer or business-facing applications that use that middleware uh, to enable new and, uh, and novel solutions to problems that exist today. And then we have an enterprise branch as well, which which produces, which again uses the, that middleware um, and the access to um, the Ethereum network to solve problems like supply chain tracking. There's the uh, and uh, and and other other um, other often finan often financial solutions are, are what we what people tend to associate with blockchain. Um, but in mm. fact, no, we we do all kinds of things. Like uh, our one of the most interesting projects we had recently was uh, BHP Billiton. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're a mining company. Based in Australia, and they, and when they uh, when they do these uh, these drill these oil wells, the an exploratory well can cost a hundred million dollars to drill. There's only one opportunity to collect samples on the way down, 
and they had yeah. problems tracking these samples as they as they moved from vendor to vendor. And so basically, we built a system that allowed them using uh, using the using Ethereum to track those uh, track those core samples. And then what what that then turns into, right, is we've figured, we've solved this problem, and we can find analogous problems elsewhere and reapply the technology that we've developed. The um, the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is probably, I, I shouldn't say probably, the ultimate goal is definitely to rebuild the society that we live in. Uh, no, yeah, so so we're, we'd like to rebuild as many uh, elements of, of human society as we can uh, as we can find an opportunity to to rebuild using uh, using blockchain. And in a sense, it's it's that's almost passe uh, in this day and age that they make the world a better place, right? And and, and that's not okay. really, you know, it's, it's not really necessarily what, um, you know, we have an economic imperative. We we have a, a business imperative here. We want to right. be here to build successful businesses. And um, and we've been able to do that thus far. Uh, things, are looking, uh, things are looking fantastic, really, in, in the blockchain space. But there's a strong ideological bent to what goes on at consensus, and it's built around things like uh, empowering individuals uh, to work better together, uh, more efficiently, create new markets, and um, and enjoy the, the the fruits of the digital era, which haven't really been fairly distributed uh, globally. <laughs> if you look okay. as uh, as Pele was saying, it, uh, in places like Somalia, um, if you don't have a, uh, a robust identity. You can't interact with uh, with a lot of online services, and that's uh, that's just one example of, of many. Uh, yeah, you can't own property. You can't. Um, I mean, it's hard to participate in anything if you don't have a um, a stable identity. I understand. Yeah, yeah most of the, most yeah. of the world is like this. Is we live like cruisy lives. Like most of the world, people live in tough shape, and not only is there a humanitarian uh, you know, responsibility that we all have to improve the lot of, of you know, <laughs> of every every person in the world. But these are markets. You know, these are these are untapped markets. That, that if we right. can open them up using things like digital identity, then uh, there are business opportunities there. And so that's really, I mean, that's just one of the many views that you would find at consensus. I think um, I think that would probably. Okay. Do you, what do you think, Pally? Is that, is that probably is that, is that along the same lines as as you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the uh, general view. I mean, that's why we're working on Uport, for example, uh, and uh, pretty much everyone I I know within consensus. I mean, this is this is like our overall goal. Okay. All right, guys. We'll, um, yeah, we'll wrap for now. Uh, you know, my fault again for starting late. But I I really appreciate you guys' time, and I I like the spirit that you guys have that you want to help. You know, not just people in one particular country, but all over the world. And I think the work you guys are doing is going to have tremendous impact. So it's a great thing, and uh, you should be very proud to be involved with it. So thank you again. Hey, we are. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Almost Here. Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, 
virtual reality, and more. 